So we have about uh, 35 minutes. And the topic I have unpacked is a big one. It is massive. I would have loved for more time to do justice to this topic. Uh, but by God's grace, I'm sure um, through his word he will cancel us. You know, he will teach, he will rebuke, correct, and instruct us in all righteousness, like uh, he promises to do in his word. And so I'm going to request that we read together from uh, Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, the topic is Genesis, so let's go back to Genesis and uh, uh, explore uh, the scriptures together. So Genesis chapter 1, this is the ESV, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and this is what the Bible says from verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let, um, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good, verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing uh, fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for the signs and for the season, and for the days and years. And let them be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with, with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, um, with which the waters swarm, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, according to their kind, um, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, according to their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth, according to their kind, and the livestock, according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant here in seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Um, Genesis, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. Genesis literally means the beginning. And so we could look at this book in two ways. First of all, it is the beginning, it's the story, it's where the biblical story, the narrative, the redemptive narrative begins. It unfolds, the story unfolds from the book of Genesis. Chapter 1. Alright? Um, and so, first of all, it's the first book of the Bible. But second of all, it is the book of beginnings. Yeah? Everything we know to exist begins to exist at Genesis. At the Genesis. It's the Genesis of all things. And so, we could exploit uh, in those two ways. But how I want us to uh, tackle this is uh, look at how Genesis reveals the character of God. There is something about the nature and attributes of God that the book of Genesis brings out. And the book of Genesis is merely serves as a preface, as the introduction. It opens the door, and this character of God and the consistency of his being flows right from Genesis through to Revelation and beyond. Because experientially, even today, we continue to see these attributes of God uh, unfold. And so, Let's get to Genesis. The first thing that we see uh, about God, what, how God is introduced to us, is that He's a personal being. He's a relational being. Part of my interest uh, in theology is the field of apologetics. And in apologetics, we basically make a case for the faith that we hold, what, giving reason for the hope that we have in, in, in Christ. Essentially, that's that's what we do. And often when we begin conversations like Genesis begins, because Genesis begins by presupposing the existence of God, right? In the beginning, God. It does not try to make justifications for the existence of God and all. It begins with presupposing that God does exist. Alright? And so, oftentimes, when we begin engaging in this way with our friends who are skeptics and atheists, they will tell you, they will ask you, okay, everything we know to exist has a beginning, right? We know God exists, so you are arguing that God exists. Then, does, how did God begin to exist? You know? Who, who created God? Everything, has a, everything we know to exist has a source code, so to speak, right? So, what is God's source code? And clearly, the Bible does not help. 
yeah, it essentially says God is eternally existent and necessarily so. I'm not getting into the philosophies and the arguments of that. But the point I want to bring across is oftentimes they present this as being inconsistent with rationality and reason. Yeah? You cannot just believe as a rational being that someone or something that does exist has always existed. It's inconsistent. Yet, we know some things that science believes to exist that do not have a beginning. Energy, for example. Energy exists, right? And if anyone doubts that energy exists, you could slap them. They will feel the effect of energy. And if they doubted that energy existed, then they, that, that proves that energy exists, right? That locomotion and the landing on the chip, they'll have a feel of what energy uh, can do. And so, energy, we are told, was not created, cannot be created, and energy cannot be destroyed. Energy can only be transformed, okay? But energy cannot be created, energy cannot be destroyed. And so some have argued, uh, some clever ones, especially the agnostics, they will argue and say, okay, then I'll give you that, I'll give you that. So it's not inconsistent to believe that God has always existed because there are phenomena in science that we know not to be created and cannot be destroyed, like energy. So could it be that God is just an energy? God is just a force? Yeah? And uh, there are people who believe, naturalists, for example, believe in the concept of Gaia, they call it, uh, this natural life-giving force that, 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 that just exists and it gives life everything that we know to be. Why is that argument faulty? It's for the reason that I have just mentioned. God, energy is very random. Energy is very impersonal. If you apply that same uh, example of moving your arm towards the cheek of the king of England, the guy will feel the slap, right? If you apply it to a pauper somewhere on some random street in Calcutta, they will feel the heat. Energy is impersonal, right? And yet, for God, as revealed in the scripture, God is a very personal being. God is very personal. So he cannot just be an impersonal, life-giving force. God is personal. Take a look at what is happening here. God is speaking things into being. God is calling forth things. God is, when it comes to man, he actually makes man in his image and likeness. And he breathes into man the breath of life. It is personal. It is intentional. God communes with himself in verse 26 of chapter 1, right? He says, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And in the image of life and likeness of God, uh, God creates man, male and female, right? 26, 27, uh, thereabout. And so we find that with the things that God puts together, there is a certain sense of personhood. There is there is the imprint of God. There is what theologians call the imago Dei, the print of God on every single human being that gets created. And then God exists in community. 
That is why the word used here is plural, right? And some argue that the notion of the Trinity uh, is inconsistent with biblical teaching. Took uh, our church fathers a while to figure it out, but they did. God said, let us make man. Who was he referring to? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The counsel of God, the divine counsel. He says, let us, plural, make man in our image and likeness. And so, there's something very personal about God. And then, of course, when we continue with the story of creation, and uh, particularly Adam and Eve, God, it appears, desired to have a relationship with Adam and Eve. You know, when he comes in chapter 3, verse 8, in the cool of day, walking in the cool of day and, 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 and wants to engage with Adam and Eve and they are hiding. He, he desires to walk with Adam and Eve. You know, he, he's, a, he's a personal being. He's a personal being. He's the God who introduces himself. He introduces himself to Moses by name. He creates Adam. He gets into covenant with Abraham. All these are very personal, relational kind of activities. And you need to appreciate a thing or two about, real, uh, about uh, covenant. Yeah? The Hebrew word for covenant is berit. And berit in that culture, and uh, essentially, pretty much to date, the most, the deepest, the most intimate of relationships back then was the family relationship. It was who is my immediate family, right? So my father, my brothers, my mother, that, that's my family. And then it was my tribe. Several families come together and form a clan part. And then several clans come together and form a tribe. And several tribes come together and form a nation. And so kinship, the deepest expression of kinship, was family. Alright? And I think the same is true today, right? You're related to these people by blood. Covenant was how Nan's kin was made kin, quote unquote. How I would get to treat you who is Nan kin as I would treat my kin was through the concept of covenant. And we still have examples of that in our culture today. Unfortunately, not very good examples, because marriage is probably the closest, the closest example of what covenant is. I'm from Western Kenya, married to a girl from Central Kenya. Yet if I die today, everything I own will go to this girl from Central Kenya. Why? Because we signed some paper and exchanged some ring. Do you find, uh, do you see how ridiculous that is? I'm not related to her by blood. Yeah? So it appears as though there is a force, there is a binding that is even deeper and more intimate than blood. My parents can lay no case to the things I own. But my wife, because of that covenant relationship called marriage, can lay case to that. Now, covenant, covenant is how non-kin got to be considered kin. I consider Nancy, who is not my kin, kin now, the closest probably kin I have on account of the on account of the covenant. So God gets into covenant with Abraham, and it is fascinating. Gets into this relationship. 
uh, with, with, with Abraham. He is called a friend of Moses. Okay, so getting to this friendship with Moses, we find him um, relating closely with, 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 with David and, and all through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, there are stories of God dealing with man intimately, closely. This is a God that desires relationship. Do you know the two most common metaphors in the Bible of God's relating with man? Does anyone know what was, does anyone want to warrant a guess? What are the two most frequent metaphors for God's relating or relationship with man in the Bible? Anyone? Come on. No, well, there are probably wrong answers, but uh, <laughs> at least it's common, trust me, it's probably what you're thinking. Uh-huh. Anyone wants to try? I know there are many metaphors that I used, but there are two very consistent ones. Anyone wants to try? One? One is apparent. Father. That's why Israelites are called the children of Israel. And God describes himself as Father. Alright? Throughout the Old Testament, he's the father of the fatherless. He's, um, you know, takes the children of Israel as his own. Jesus teaches us to pray and say, when we pray, we should pray our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Father. Parent. Today still remains one of the closest relationships. Uh, metaphors for but one of the deepest expressions of relationship, right? That is how God wants to describe himself. That's how God describes himself. As a father, as a parent, right? And then secondly, as a lover, okay? So he calls himself, he calls Israel his, his wife, yeah? Yahweh is the husband of Israel. And he talks about his frustration, pours it out particularly through the prophets, of how he loved on his bride, but his bride went adrift and chased after other lovers. And he talks of the heartbreak that he feels. And you find an expression of this right across the Old Testament. Right? Sometimes even literal expressions of this through the lives of the prophets, like Hosea, for example. Yeah? Hosea incarnated how God wanted to relate with his bride and how his bride was spanning his love. And guess what? At the consummation of time, you and I, the church is called what? The bride of Christ, right? The bride of Christ. And so we'll be married and be with him forever. And so he wants to describe and define himself as a lover. Ladies and gentlemen, my point is this. God desires relationship. He's a relational being and he desires relationship. I want to follow this same theme across some five uh, chapters, so to speak. Still try to keep it in time. And uh, the first idea I want us to explore is how Eden demonstrates this. Okay, so five E's to help you remember. Number one is the idea of Eden. And literally, the word Eden means the place of God's presence. Okay? The place of God's presence. So God creates man and puts man in the place 
of this presidency. There's a theologian called Sandra Richter, who is a professor of Old Testament, and she says, you could sum up the gospel narrative in three ways. You could say, God desires, God created his people to live in his place and enjoy his presence forever. God's people, in God's place, enjoy God's presence for all time. That is the gospel. And God's people in God's place is what we have just read in Genesis chapter 1. It is God creating his people, Adam and Eve, and placing them in his presence. Eden, literally meaning the place of the presence of God. Eden. Again, it tells you what God desires. He desires that relationship. No wonder he puts them there at the place of his presence. The second E is Exodus. Alright? Because something happens. Sin gets introduced into the picture. I want you to see, first of all, from what we have read, the order of creation for you to understand and appreciate sin for what it is. Many of us think sin is a uh, a struggle. No. I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. When it really means you're sinning, right? We, we, we kind of uh, water it down to make it more malleable and less offensive. Sin is cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. And for you to appreciate it, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, what we have just read. Now, let's follow this thread. God creates the world in a very orderly fashion. I don't know if you've ever noticed that the first three things that God creates on day one, day two, and day three are all habitats. Now, I did environmental science at the university for my first degree. And so, in uh, environmental science, we say uh, we study the five spaces. The hydrosphere, or the water, the lithosphere, or the land, the atmosphere or the air, and the biosphere, the sphere of life that connects all these together. Okay? So, God begins with the habitats. Day one, He creates day and night. Day two, He creates, He separates the waters above and the waters beneath. So, the seas and the skies. Day three, He creates land and vegetation. It's all habitats. And then it comes to day four and begins creating inhabitants of the habitats, following the same order. Day one, he created day and night, and so day four, he creates what is to govern the day, the sun, and what is to govern the night, which is the moon. Day five, he creates birds to rule the air, and fish to rule the sea. Day six, he creates land animals and man. And so, it's almost as though someone is organizing his closet. Begins by hang, putting the hangers, okay, and then taking the clothes and putting them on the hangers. And for married people, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary this week, marriage and wedding anniversary. And so, uh, you will know when you get married that it needs to face one direction. I did not know that. Yeah? One direction. And when you're squeezing a toothpaste, you start from the bottom. I've learned this thing. 
So we see order and design and intentionality and, and beauty. And personally, that is why I went to study environmental science. Because the Bible says creation declares the glory of God. Like there is a voice of creation. Actually, John Calvin is the one who famously says that. He says, God left us with two books. Okay? The book of creation is often ignored. It is ignored. We read the scripture, ultimate revelation of God, and of course the Son of God being the epitome of that revelation. But there is revelation from the created world. The Bible says creation declares the glories of God. And there is no language on earth where that voice is not heard. The voice of creation. And so we are the poorer for it when we know the voice of creation. And from this order that we find in Genesis, you see intentionality and design and intelligence and complexity and beauty and grandeur that should lead you to worship. Amen? You should not get carried away. That's a pet subject. Anyway, and then, so you can almost have a hanger, the cloth, hanger, the cloth, day one, day two, day three. And then, at the very end, there is man to rule over all this. But man was not supreme because man was to be like a viceroy. He was operating under the mandate that God gave him. Alright? So God was the ultimate. Creation essentially is God's. Right? The Bible says that the earth and the fullness thereof belongs to who? To God. We only steward creation, but creation does not belong to us. We are not the ultimate. And so this anthropocentric view that suggests that everything is for us is wrong. God is the ultimate owner of all there is. Alright? But when sin enters into the world, man essentially decides to reject God's place. God had defined to man what is right, what is wrong, what should be done, and what should not be. Because this is God's world. It is God's province. And he sets the rules, and man chose to disregard those rules. You know essentially what man was saying? Depose God from the throne, and I become the God. I become the chief. God said this, I ignore God, and I become the king. In fact, the serpent uh, says it, because the serpent says, the day you, you will be like God. So it was all about the quest for divinity, right? It was a quest for, that's why I'm saying it was treason. It was usurping God's prerogative to define and determine what should be done and what should not be done. And that is essentially what man is doing today, for example, in sexuality. The reason why homosexuality is particularly a grievous sin is because man is trying to redefine what God has already defined. And Romans chapter 1 talks about that extensively. Although they knew God, they chose not to obey or regard him and instead yeah, burned with passion and lust for each other and God gave them up to the depravity of their hearts. Ladies and gentlemen, sin is cosmic treason against the God of the universe. That is why Martin Luther wrote a book titled Sin is Serious. I encourage you to go read the book. Sin is not just a struggle. And those of you who are having those pet sins that you keep getting back to and all that, I want you to know sin will take you further than you want to go, 
deeper than you want to go, higher than you want to go, and the return thereof will not be worth those trips you'll be taking. John Piper talks of Christian hedonism. The idea of finding ultimate satisfaction in God rather than in all these things, the little pleasures of sin that only last for a season. Finding your ultimate sense of being and belonging and joy and satisfaction in God. And so sin is not um, just a small challenge. Sin is actually rebellion against God. And so, think of it like this. If this edifice was in glass, sin breaks the glass. The pieces of glass are still there, but broken. And so when you look at humanity today, you see images of God, but mad, scarred images of God on account of this sin. And when you continue throughout the Old Testament, for example now Exodus and what happens in the Exodus and all that, really the rest of the Old Testament is a story of man messing up over and over and over again. And God always coming back to bring man to himself. God painting a picture of the ultimate plan that he has for the redemption of man. The Exodus. The last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. And I think that's a nice way to sum up the story of the Old Testament. Man is a cast on account of his sin, right? Man looks for new ways, invents ways of sinning over and over and over and over again. God tells man to not do this, and that's exactly what man does. The heart of man in Jeremiah 17:9, the Bible says, is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? And that is the problem. So we may try to fix the systems, structures and all, but as long as we have not dealt with the problem of man's heart, man will continue to mess up every system he gets into. He is the problem. And so, we come to the end of the Old Testament. But the plan that God had set in motion, when he came with judgment, after man had sinned, takes full effect. Of course it began right when God proclaimed it, but it takes full expression, so to speak, when Emmanuel shows up. And you know what Emmanuel means? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Are you seeing how the theme continues to unfold? Eden was what? The place of God's presence. Emmanuel is who? God with us. Again, the whole idea of God desiring to be with his people. And so Jesus comes. And brothers and sisters, the coming of Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of the, the high moon of God's plan, the zenith of what God anticipated to do, uh, I mean, uh, desired to do. God had prophesied in uh, Genesis that the seed of a woman would crush the head of a serpent, right? That is what we call the proto-evangelica. The first time the gospel is truly preached, a prophecy on the coming of Jesus is given, and it is given by God the Father himself. No other human can claim to be the seed of a woman, except who? Jesus Christ. We are all seeds of men, but Jesus Christ is the seed of a woman. And so Emmanuel comes, and brothers and sisters, he comes to deal with sin. You remember what sin had done when it entered into the world as a virus? 
broken down the order and design of God, so Jesus comes. And this is what Jesus does to sin. Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. Actually, we begin with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, um, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, which says, No, there's none who does what is right, no, not one. And all that is just a description of our journey across the scriptures up to Malachi, right? The last, the last word in Malachi was the cup. Did I say Malachi or Revelation? Malachi, right? The last word in the Old Testament. Now, up to that point, Jesus essentially comes and begins to deal right from there. Because the coming of Jesus, the first thing it, it does is it appreciates and anticipates the fact that you are sinners. And that's why the Bible says, while you are yet still sinners, God sent his son to come die on the cross for us, right? So Jesus comes to deal with the problem of sin first and foremost. We all are sinners, Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, and what is the penalty for sin? It is death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. And so what you and I deserve on account of our sin, are they alive? God, okay. What you and I deserve is death. Jesus comes, and that's the first thing he deals with, the penalty of sin. He comes and becomes sin that we may be called the righteousness of God, the divine exchange at the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we may be called the righteousness of God. And because the penalty for sin is death, he dies on the cross and essentially pays that penalty, takes it upon himself and breaks one of those holes that sin has over you, which is what? You deserve, you are meant to die, you deserve to die on account of your sin. And so he breaks the first hold of sin over you. Romans 6.23 But the second thing that the coming of Christ does, the coming of Emmanuel does, is it breaks the power of sin over you. Allow me to read Romans chapter 8 verse 2. Quickly, and my time is up, if you believe it. Uh, Romans chapter 8 um, verse 2 The Bible says For the law of the spirit of life Has set you free in Christ Jesus From the law of sin and death The law of the spirit of life Has set you free In Christ Jesus From the law of sin and death Do you appreciate what the Bible is saying? Sin No longer has Power over you You are no longer slave of sin. And Paul goes ahead to talk about how we become slaves of righteousness rather than slaves of sin or slaves to sin. And therefore the power of sin over you is broken by the coming of Emmanuel. So the first thing he does is break the penalty of sin that you need to pay. But the second thing is the power, the hold of sin over you. He breaks it and we become slaves to righteousness. But lastly, brothers and sisters, God desires that beyond the coming of Jesus, He sends His Holy Spirit. I think it's in John chapter 14. Jesus says, It's a good thing that I go so that I may send the helper to come. And while then, Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, 
But truth is, the people who experienced him were the people he walked around with in some small corner of the universe in the Middle East, right? Right? He lived about 33 years and they experienced him. But now he says, it's a good thing that I go so that the Holy Spirit may come because this is the indwelling spirit. It is not just God with us. It is God in us. It is the spirit of God resident, residing in us, empowering us to witness and to be his followers, to do his good and pleasing will. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, every day as we walk today, we walk with Jesus because the Spirit of God is in us. It is the witness, the Bible says, Paul writes about it and says, the Spirit of God is the witness. It's uh, the first installment, the deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance as a child of God. You are sure you're God because you have the deposit, the deposit of the Spirit in you. And so, that's the, that's the fourth E. It is God with us, God in us, with our, in our everyday, you know, as you go about, as you do your thing, and that's why we are to be Salt and light, witnesses of Christ in whichever place, places that we are planted. Because we have the Spirit of God in us. Do you see how that thing progresses? God desiring relationship and it's so intimate that He is with you literally everywhere you go. And so saying that you should never be afraid when you go to places, when you walk through the valleys or the shadows of death. You know why? Because He's right there with you. When you pass through those floods in the waters, he's right there with you. The Spirit of God in us. But lastly, and I conclude with this, it's in eternity. What is the end game? How will it all end? The end game, brothers and sisters, is that we will be with the Lord forever. Alright? Forever. John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus says, so that where he's going to prepare a place for us, so that where he is, we will also be. Now, in those days, when a groom would get a bride, they'd get the bride and take them to their father's house. Otherwise called the pet up in Hebrew. You're taking them to your father's house so that they may be with you forever. A woman in that culture was only as important as the closest male relationship that he had. So he was either a daughter to his father, or when she grows up, she becomes a wife to the husband, or when she becomes a mother, a mother to the son. Alright? And so if you found a girl who had broken all that, lost the father, lost the husband, uh, lost the son, she would want to be called Mara, like Naomi. They call me Mara because God has dealt bitterly with me. My father died. My husband died. My sons are dead. Yes, I have daughter-in-laws, but in this culture, it is the it was a patriarchal culture. It is the men, all right. And so, as a bride, you be taken to the up to the father's house, and you become one with that family. You become co-joined to that family, and that is why, as the bride of Christ. Christ is going to come to take us where he is, so that where he is, we shall also be the ultimate up, the Father's home. 
brothers and sisters, that is what God desires. That where He is, we shall be for all time. He desired this relationship. But on account of sin, you and I are separated from God. And there's nothing we can do to reconcile that gap, that rift between us and Himself. Nothing is good enough. Your acts of righteousness are like filthy rags before Him. At your best, before Him, you are probably at the worst possible and lowest possible place. There's nothing you can do. There's almost no hope for you apart from Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus tells His disciples, the disciples ask Jesus, Who then can be saved? And Jesus tells them, With man, it is impossible. You cannot be saved. In and of yourself, you cannot be saved. That's why John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. When I use the article there before a claim, I am asserting exclusivity. There is no other way apart from Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ becomes to be that way that we can connect to and with the Father and where He is ultimately at the consummation of time and in the fullness of time we may also be. And Jesus does it by laying down His life so that when God looks at you, a sinner, you and me He sees the perfect Son and the perfect record of the Son. And when he saw the sun hanging on that cross, he saw the sins of the world. And so he treats you as though you live the kind of life that Jesus lived. And he treats Jesus at the cross as though he lived the kind of life that you, in your sin, are living. And that is the substitution that happens at the cross. And when you surrender and yield to his lordship, then you receive that gift that he gives you on account of his perfect record. And that is the gift of eternity spent with God. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. And that is why the gospel is not primarily a code of ethics. It is not things you need to do and things you should not do. The gospel is news. The gospel is what has been done in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And so the only appropriate response to the gospel is what are the implications. When news is read to you today, imagine you are fighting Somalia, okay? And back in the day, kings would go to war. And so they would go, imagine to end up with Ghana, Mogadishu, and there are no mobile phones. And so a herald would be sent with news after the war back to the country where the king had come from, okay? And that, that's the evangelists now, yeah? Because they are evangelists. Evangelists is actually Greek. And that's, that was the idea. The evangelists would be sent back to their own country with news. What was the news? The king has won! And if the king has won, then there are implications. And if news is we have lost the war. The king has been killed. There are also implications. And then it is the Pangama And that is why, brothers and sisters, the gospel is news. 
it only has implications. And for us, the implications are great joy because the king has conquered. Death is defeated. Death is dead in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your only appropriate response is what that what are the implications for me? Alright? And the implication is should you choose to surrender to his lordship, the eternity awaits you. Because that is the gift that he earned by the victory that he won on the cross. That is the gospel. That is Genesis. That is Revelation. That is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible begins in a garden. It ends in a garden city. And that is usually the flow of nature. Nairobi will one day be a garden again. It was a garden before humans. It will be a garden again. The river of life that we found in Genesis, we find it in Revelation at the end. It is a very clear book with book ends. We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory because that has been won by Jesus Christ. We know how this story unfolds from the beginning to the end on account of what Jesus Christ accomplished. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. That is Genesis. That is Revelation. I pray as we live in the in-between, we will be guided by this truth. And if you are here and have never surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, I would want you to consider Jesus and what he did. And may he draw you himself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... You speak to us through your word. I pray that this word will not return to you void, but Lord, it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. That there is no salvation in any other but you. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which we shall be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that we will plead to that name and never lose sight of it. And for any of us who have not yielded and surrendered to your Lordship, Lord, I pray that we will be convicted of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and run to the cross and find the love that we seek. Convict those who do not know you. For none can come to you unless they are drawn to you by yourself. And I pray that for the believers in the house, they will be edified, they will be encouraged, they will be instructed to do all that you require them to do. And to just live in light of the cross and honor and glorify and magnify you for who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do in our lives. We give you praise and we give you thanks. For we ask this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.